Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview my old boss and friend, Keith Dobson. Now, Keith was a soldier, served out in the Falklands, amongst other places, joined the police. He's now a published author, or just about to be a published author, I should say. Um, Keith, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. And and thanks for getting me out of bed so early. <laughs> it's been a long time since anybody said that to me, mate. <laughs> I was I was normally going through the door with a warrant, but um yeah, that's but, right. But yeah, Keith, thank you so much, as I say. And where did it all begin? You're from the northeast, but where did it all begin for Keith Dobson? What, right at the beginning? Right, right ago? at the beginning, mate, yeah. Well, um, so I was born in 1962, believe it or not. You don't look uh, old enough. You've still got all your own hair. That's not fair. Yeah, it might be somebody <laughs> else's hair, but I won't, uh, I won't go into secrets. Yeah, I was born in 62. Um, to a, I, I, I thought about this. I'm, I, I don't like the class systems. I don't like working class, middle class, you know, upper class, all that sort of thing. But I came from a, a very... Um, a family that worked hard for a living. Um, my father worked in the um, CEGB, which is the Central Electricity Generating Board. Yeah. Um, and he worked shifts all his life. Very seldom did I see him. Um, Christmas Day, he would arrive back from work, um, spend an hour with the kids and then go to bed, birthdays and stuff like that. So very hard working man. Um, and a mother... Um, who um, who was a, a mother at home? Um, I had um, I have two brothers um, and one sister who still live up the northeast, as my mum does. My dad sadly died now, um, but a very um, hardworking family with very little to uh, to go on. My parents didn't never learn to drive all their lives, which is I find incredibly amazing um, in today's day and age. So everywhere we went on holiday was on a bus um, or a train, but mainly a bus because they were cheaper than trains. Um, so holidays for us were was, was generally in a caravan in um, in Hartlepool. And, um, and 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 my dad chose that because my dad worked for the CGB for the power stations supplying the electricity. He had an affiliation with the miners and yep. the mines. And near Hartlepool, I always have this vivid memory that um, when we stayed in the caravan on one occasion, he traipsed us all uh, to a nearby village, I think called Black Hall, something to do with coal. There was a big mine there. And because he had an affiliation with the miners, he was able to eat in their canteen so we stayed in the caravan and he took his family for a slap up in the miners' canteen every day. How funny is that? Because, and you paid about 
three bob, you know, for, for, for the whole family. And we had this huge three-course meal. And it was my dad's treat to us to sit with all these miners with blackened faces and orange uh, jumpsuits on and, um, and sit and eat uh, with them. So that was sort of my upbringing with a, with a family. But my mum was very, um, she was very disciplined and is disciplined, although sadly she suffers from um, Alzheimer's or dementia at the moment, and she's in a care home. Mm. Um, but she was a very um, uh, disciplined woman, uh, brought her children up very strictly. Um, one of the things that, um, I, I, again, I remember is that we never lived in a council house because she was too proud. She didn't want us to live um, off the state in any way um, at all. So she went that extra mile to find extra money. And we always lived in a rented house rather than a council estate. They couldn't afford it, no. but they found the money and she went out doing cleaning jobs and stuff like that. And the other thing was that when I went to school, um, I was eligible because of the, they were means tested um, and I was eligible for free dinners right. at school. You know, the free dinner yeah, tickets. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if in Essex you had that sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah, certainly did. did. No. <laughs> so, um, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't allow. She found the additional money to pay for the dinners because she didn't want the children to be seen queuing for free dinners. So she always paid for it, and and, and that was the kind of woman that uh, she was in those days. So that that sort of formed my early years by having this discipline and this. You got to do better. She always used to say, do better. There's always something else out there that you can do. And that, um, that, that, that was my upbringing with, with, with that sort of family environment. Was that in Newcastle? Yeah. So, um, sorry, that was in Gateshead, which is immediately south of the river of Newcastle. Um, but, yeah, I was born, born and bred in Gateshead, but with huge Newcastle connections because... My, dad's, um, my dad had three brothers um, and three sisters, and my, uh, my mum had um, five brothers and sisters as well. So we had an extended family. Some lived in Newcastle, some lived in Gateshead. So if you want to disappear from your parents at any time, I had a huge extended family to go and cousins all over the shop. Um, uncles, aunts, and I could just disappear for days if I wanted to, as long as my mum knew where I was and who I was staying with. So I had that variety of people all the time because so many people um, had different lifestyles, had different backgrounds, although they were all from the same two families. But I would learn from uncles and learn from aunts what they did in life, where have they been in life. So although I had this very sort of small bubble of a life with my parents and my sister and two brothers, I had this extended family to learn from. And Hartlepool, put in perspective, is probably only about 30 miles down the road from Gateshead, isn't it? When you're going on holiday? It's it's a long time on a bus, I can remember. Uh, (laughs) We're talking about an era where... You know, you're born in 62, you're only 18 years, 17 years after the end of the Second World War. By the time you get to 1970, we're talking about Kez, the film, and all the – and social deprivation, I think people seem to forget. They talk about social deprivation now. Social deprivation then was pretty – it was pretty grim. You know, 
people would go and take coal from the coal yard because they couldn't afford to buy it. And it was it was, it was a harsh lifestyle. Well, I, I, just to illustrate that on two points, I, because my dad worked for the, the power station, I can remember we, we always had a coal fire and dad used to always light the fire. That was his job. Um, it, it was always off when he, we were always cold when he wasn't there. But when he came home, the fire came on. And, and partly the reason for that is he used to bring a back sack home full of coal from the from the power stations that's right. where we got our fuel we didn't buy it he'd bring it home and it always used to be like a foot by a foot and we'd sit in the backyard with a hammer and a chisel and cut it into little bits and the other thing is in our and i remember this in our toilets the toilet paper always had cegb printed <laughs> on the very rough <coughs> toilet paper in 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 the toilet and I think thirdly, just to illustrate, um, and you've probably seen this on TV, um, because the other thing is that when I was when you're born up north in those days, there is a north-south divide, mm. and you always and you don't know much about the south of England and how people are getting on because you don't have mobile phones, your television's very, you know, there's only a couple of channels on television, so it's your world. You only learn about your world wherever you are. And um, and I remember when we went to the uh, the caravan, we had a pot belly stove in the caravan. Can you imagine a pot belly stove in a caravan now? You know, um, and we used to um, every night when the tide went out, we'd go down to the beach and collect coal that had been washed up onto the beach, and we we'd fill our buckets and take it back, and that that filled the um, the pot belly stove in the caravan. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. So you, you've gone through your schooling. What was the inspiration for you to join the army? You know, why why did you go down that route? Well, I, I wasn't great at school, um, and I, I again, I've I've got memories of when again school was very disciplined in those days, and you either excelled or you didn't. There was no middle ground. You either did well. Or you didn't, and if you weren't showing any, um, you know, qualities at the early stages, you got put into classes which weren't going anywhere, mm. and they were full of rowdy people and full of bullies and full of people who were disinterested. So if you had a nub of "I want to do better," it got drowned out by the environment, the people around you. So I really did want to do better. My mum, you know, lashed that out of me several times to do better. But I was surrounded in, in people that didn't. So in actual fact, I left school with very, very few qualifications, quite a few qualifications, but nothing that you'd want to share with anybody. And um, and and so I was faced with this. Well, what am I going to do? And my dad took me um, for a few jobs and I, I didn't get through the exams. I mean, I actually the, I mean, this is, amazes me nowadays. It doesn't uh, when you work it out. But he took me for an interview to be a bricklayer and I failed. And I, I, at that time, I thought, how can you fail to be a bricklayer? What do you do? You just put a brick on top of another brick. How can you fail the exam? With Wimpy, it was. Um, but actually, it wasn't. It was all mathematics. It was, you know, you've yeah. got um, six metres by seven metre wall, 
um, if you use bricks of a certain height and, and shape and so how many and then you've got a corner. And of course, I didn't do well in maths. And, uh, you know, I remember not doing my homework in uh, correctly um, in, in, a, in a maths lesson. And when the lesson started, I went and queued up with all the kids. I got to the front and the fe- I, re- I remember the female teacher screamed at me for getting it all wrong and told me to stand in the corner for the remainder of the lesson, facing the corner while she taught the other kids. Now, I wanted to learn, but I was told to stand in the corner whilst the others were taught. And that's how they treat people in those days. And obviously, you didn't stand a chance if you wanted to do something. Or if you got something wrong, you just needed some guidance. And it it just wasn't given. Anyway, so back to your original question. Um, The army. um, A lot of friends at that time um, tended to be joining the army. And bear in mind, I was 15 when I left school. Um, It's just my birthdays at the end of July. So the end of term was uh, June. Um, So you either stay on for another year or you leave. And obviously, because I had no hope in terms of qualifications, I left. And uh, so I was 15. And some friends were joining the army and they were coming back on, on leave, you know, relatively short period after joining, telling me how wonderful it was how they were traveling to, to to places and doing things that I'd never done. And I thought, I've got to go. I've got to join. And I asked my parents, and initially my mother said, absolutely no. Dead against it, she said, you'll be beaten up, you'll be killed, you'll be pilloried, you'll be, you know, all these sort of things. You'll be shouted at. She shouted at me enough, but, you know, <laughs> she didn't want anyone else to shout at me. So um, anyway, my dad... Um, got her to change her mind. As long as she said, you join something technical, you don't, and I remember her words, you're not going to become cannon fodder. I will not sign up for you to become pa- cannon fodder. So that was the infantry paras and all that sort of out yeah. the window. So um, I joined um, the Royal Signals. And um, and I remember the, um, the, the the sergeant. You do these academical um, academic tests to join the army, and um, and they 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 position you where they think you're going to be, where where you're best placed in the army, because if you've got any intelligence, they're not going to put you. And and you know, no disrespect to the infantry, and I, I don't mean this at all, but if you're quite intelligent, they don't want you to be a fighting soldier because you're going to get bored with that. And you leave the army. And they're very careful about their selection of people. So they did this, the, these, um, these tests and said to me, you've got the intellect to be um, in a technical trade. And I thought, well, I, I, I just failed at school. What I didn't know, I had the inner ability, but I, I, didn't, I, I hadn't realized it. And so they said, "You're going to jump. We're going to put you in the Royal Signals." And they explained to me, "If you go and drive trucks, you're going to get bored and leave, and that's not what we want to happen. We want sustainability when people join the army." So they put me in. They allocated me the signals and put me into a military college for two years. Wow! Which to me was a nightmare because I'd left school with nothing, as you remember. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was I wasn't particularly good at maths English, but I had to do 
city and guilds advanced level in maths and English to to pass through as a, a in as a radio telegraphist in the signals. So anyway, um, I joined, and I went to Harrogate uh, Army Apprentice College for a two year apprenticeship, um, and um, and I remember walking into my maths lesson having failed in the in the past at school, and there was an Irish teacher. Um, and there were all 16 year olds apart from me. I was just, just 16, just left 15 years. And he started to teach us and a light was switched on. It just suddenly became really apparent that I knew what he was talking about and what it was, it was a different style of teaching. And he was teaching us like adults instead of juveniles. And the light just switched off, and I understood. I understood algebra. I understood fractions, divisions. It just came to me, and I thought, this is great. I'm now learning everything that I'd lost at school. Yeah. And I got through those two years, and I passed every one of the examinations, the maths, the English, at advanced level, um, and all the... The other stuff, typing, I learned to type, Morse code, um, antenna attenuation, working out how to send radio signals from here to Australia unhindered, all those sort of things. And um, and I passed out. Um, and I passed out in 1980. 1980? Yeah. Wow. It is, I mean, if you look at the way the signals are probably working today it's it probably evolves more than any other section within the british army because it's the army can't work without the signals and the army catering corps they're, they're the two well, the, the, to support that the uh, the the arm that sorry the signals are the only cause that have a support um section in the SES, integrated in the SES and the Parachute Regiment. We support um, all organisations. I say we, they, yeah. um, are the only, the, the greatest support core to every unit in, in, in the British Army. Everybody needs communications. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and they will train their own people, don't get me wrong. So mm. the SES are all trained in, in radio procedure. But when it comes to the expert stuff, the signals are ingrained in their units to give them that support. And that's what happened to me in, in my career. I ended up supporting um, various different um, uh, different units as, a, as, a, as I went along. So we've gone through our, our basic training and nothing's really happening. We've got Northern Ireland's going on in the background, isn't it? I mean, did you get to go there? No. Um, and that I, I suppose <laughs> that is the... Um, the advantage of being in a corps as opposed to a regiment. So yeah. a regiment are your Royal Green Jackets, your Scots Guards, et cetera, et cetera. Being a support, um, like engineers, Royal Signals, because you're supporting, you don't go as a unit every th and spend three years in Northern Ireland. You would go there to support a regiment that's out there. And that's on a, a an opportunity arise situation. Right. So. It never arose with me. I got sent to different places like Cyprus, like Germany, Belize, 
Um, and then obviously the Falklands as well, all in that support of, you know, the, the regiments that were that were uh, doing what they had to do. But Northern Ireland never, I never got the opportunity to go. And and to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm quite happy with that, mm. really. I'm quite happy to be, a, a, you know, to sit back and, and say that, you know, I didn't um, put myself in all those dangers. But you were put in danger because in 1982... Keith Dobson, this 20-year-old soldier with the with the signals and his mates are then deployed to the Falklands. How did that all come about for you? Well, just just to correct you, and you, you you're in the music world, but I was no 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 nineteen. No 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 nineteen. Paul Hardcastle. That's right, yeah. I love that record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was nineteen. So uh yes, I was um so um I was in a unit called Eight Field Force, and that was uh, based in Tidworth in Hampshire, on yep. the border between Tidworth and uh, uh, Hampshire and Wiltshire. And um, and obviously um, the the writing was on the wall with the Falklands, and of course at a strategic level and at, in, at government level, they were working out what uh, what what response they could do to the build up of intelligence in Argentina. So we, um, something very quickly happened to us. We got uh, moved to Aldershot, renamed, rebadged. And we were there to support, a, a, an infantry brigade was was formed called Five Infantry Brigade. It, it was reformed. It existed in the past in, in various different um, periods in history in India and stuff like that. And it was reformed, and uh, we were moved to Aldershot, and we did a lot of the uh, the battle training in 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 Aldershot, in Aldershot, and the support, the signals communication support for the for the paras and the infantry units that were based there. And then um, and then along comes this exercise on Brecon Beacons, where we we get um, we get sent there, and we do this very unusual um, uh, training, where we get to fire. Um, uh, ground-to-air missile um, uh, weapons, throw grenades. And we think this is all very unusual, you know, because we're 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 sparkies, we're we're signals. We uh, you know we we sit in Land Rovers and communicate and with headphones on and stuff like that. But we're doing some of the real, the real you know gritty stuff. And then, um, and then after that exercise, quite a quite an f- infamous exercise because um, it, it it was it was planned to train um, us in extracting expats from an island somewhere, and we just thought that was business as usual. You know, we didn't know what was bubbling in the background, mm. and then we got um, we got told, and 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 how they told us. We all got assembled, and they said, "It looks like we're going down to um, down to the Falklands." And of course, at that time, and you know, you hear this anecdotally all the time. People just didn't know where the Falklands were, and um, and so we all got given uh, what we call an MFO box. And if you don't know what an MFO box is, an MFO box is about the size of a coffin, but it's square. It's quite a high box, and it's what the boxes that families are given when they move. It's a wooden box with handles on the side and a lid, and you screw the lid on. And families in the army, when they move from one country to another, they put all their belongings, their uh, house belongings, into MFO boxes. And I lived in accommodation in Aldershot. I was single. 
and we all got given an MFO box and we got told before we leave, we have to fill this MFO box with all of our belongings and write a letter to our mothers because this box will not be opened unless we die. So we had to put everything from our lockers, all our personal stuff that we weren't taking to the Falklands and all you took to the Falklands was military stuff, of mm. course, apart from a pair of underpants and a string vest or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and in the MFO box, everything went in and we had to sit that evening and write a letter to our mothers or our closest people, which were generally mother, father, and write a letter to say, I love you. I'm sorry it's ended this way. Mm. Please look after, this is my stuff that's left. So we did that. It was very macabre. And I remember we all sat there, wrote the letter, put in the MFO box, screwed the lid down. And then the next day we went in the world's biggest convoy on the motorway. I can't remember which which route we took down to Southampton towards the QE2. And I remember being on this uh, this convoy and it was amazing, uh, sitting in the front of a Land Rover and cars were overtaken and, and zipping into the convoy. And I just remember, I remember this this car with this um, this kid, little kid in the back of the car, and he was scribbling on paper and he held this bit of paper up to us and it said, good luck, boys. <sighs> and it's just so emotional when, you, oh, when God, you, yeah. you think back to that sort of thing and what people, what were, what was going through, not just our minds, but the minds of the population that the, you know, in our living memory that we were going to war. Incredible. And it was incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. I remember as a you know, I was I was seventeen or sixteen when it all started. But yeah, it was it was an incredible sort of feeling. The patriotism was second to none. So you, you get to Southampton and you go on the QE two. I mean the QE two most prestigious vessel in the world at that time, what was that like? You're there with a load of other squaddies. You're taking over this this cruise liner. Well, my expectations were dented very quickly because I arrived at Southampton and <clears throat> the QE2 was there and there were a number of other ships that were close, uh, uh, harboured next to the QE2. And I remember my boss, Trevor Bradley, who Trevor never forgive me for mentioning his name if ever he hears this because I'm still I still connect I see Trevor every year. He was my um, uh, uh, section commander, and he got into my Land Rover, and I was queuing up to get on the QE2 to drive this Land Rover on. Remember, I was signals, so signals had. We did all the secret stuff, all the the the, the codes, encoding, encryption. We had all the radios that people weren't allowed to see. Yeah, I call them radios. They weren't even radios. You weren't even people weren't allowed to see. It was equipment. And Trevor got on the Land Rover and he says, "Keith, there's been a change of plan." And I, I'm like sixth vehicle to get on the QE2. You know, there's five in front of me, and I can smell the the chefs. You know, the cooking the evening meal, which is obviously will involve caviar and salmon. Of course. And, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And he said, there's a change of plan. We need somebody who is um, uh, vetted to a high level to be to go on one of the ships that is going to go 
um, sort of clandestinely to the Falklands, which has all the secure equipment on. So we need you to go on that ship over there. And I looked over and I, I, I thought, it's a joke. It, it, was, it was a flat-bottomed cross-channel ferry called the Baltic Ferry. And he said, we've got all the, um, the, 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 uh, the crypto stuff on there, and we, ne we need a selection of people who have a DV, not everybody had it, to go on there. And you're gonna go on down there as an advance party before the QE2, so you'll get there before the QE2, um, but um, you're gonna have to go on there. And I, I just, all, it just, Tears rolled down my face as I saw all my mates, the whole unit, getting onto this wonderful ship called the QE2, and I had to get on this um, on this flat-bottomed cross-channel ferry. Having said that, having said it, it was great because you look at all the publicity about the QE2 and all the filming and all the the journalists were on there. The world attention was on there. We had a great time going down there. Apart from the storms and, you know, any uh, large waves rocked us from left to right all the time. Yeah. But we were left unhindered. Um, no journalists on our, our ship. Um, and we just enjoyed the – I say enjoyed. We enjoyed the experience in terms of not being in the world's eye yeah. going down there. So um, so I ended up on, on a – Because they had to the, – they, they didn't actually – the QE2 didn't actually arrive at – at the Falklands, did it? They had to transfer people off of it because they were worried about the. Um, yeah, yeah, it was such a um, iconic, an, an iconic ship. Um, first and foremost, if Argentina had have sunk the QE two, that would have that that the, the I think the the morale uh, in the UK would have been significantly dented. Yeah, if our greatest ship ever had have uh, had have been hit. So, so yes, um, but there in that that that. Um, created a number of other issues and, and a number of close friends of mine were because my unit was on the um, the QE2 um, I was on the Falklands about a week before um, and I helped the dig trenches waiting for my pals to come over um, and the day they arrived they were put onto landcraft and, and quite a number of them were bombed in Bomali really? um, of which some of my friends were, were on those um, and the amount of crypto equipment put in white bags with um, bits of heavy metal and, and thrown overboard is uh, unbelievable because these landing crafts were significantly hit and they had to get rid of and destroy a lot of the um, uh, equipment that we had. So so we were, we were crippled on day one because a lot of the stuff that we took across there to use for our secure communications – we destroyed it ourselves because of the threat of the enemy um, uh, taking it away from us. Wow. So you've arrived, you're on an advance party. At what point did you land? I landed, it was probably, I think, in the last week of um, May. Um, and I landed, and it, I, I, I remember we, um, so we had a church service. We were to... Basically, what we were informed is we we're going to because I had this Land Rover, an Arctic Land Rover with with secure equipment in there, um, radios and stuff like that. And I was going to be support for headquarters or 
or whatever. Nothing had been decided at that point. And we were told that my packet was going to leave the, the, the ship at about three o'clock in the morning in darkness. So we landed in, um, in, in the Falkland Sound in, uh, off Port Stanley. Um, and all you could hear was when we were on the ship, you could hear the racket of gunfire. You could see Tracer um, going through the sky. Um, the odd explosion occurred. And it, it was terrifying. So... I remember at midnight, the padre pulled us all together on the top deck and he said, um, he said, basically, didn't care whether we were religious or not. Everybody had to attend. The captain had said that. So we had a church service and we said a prayer and, you know, to our parents, our loved ones and stuff like that, whether whatever religion you were. And then at three o'clock in the morning, it was all dark. All the lights were off, obviously, no lights whatsoever on the ship. And my packet was called. Um, that was me, and because I, I was in charge of the section, I was a I was promoted a corporal just for I was a lance corporal, but promoted a corporal for the for the uh, for the war. Um, Nineteen years old. Wow. In, in charge of um, a number of people, um, five people, uh, five signalers. Uh, who had varying different um, skills in what they were able to do. And we um, we drove the Land Rover onto the landing craft, um, and then the landing craft neared the shore, and we had no briefing. We didn't know where we were going to go. We, we were just told, drive off the landing craft, drive onto it until you're on dry land, and then get out the Land Rover and then cover, you know, go for cover. And then somebody will come and guide you where, where you need to go. And then, as I say, the backdrop is this firing, these tracers, these explosions nearby, some of them distant, but some of them so nearby that it's scary. Mm. And I remember driving the Land Rover off the, um, off, off the landing craft and the front wheels jutted downwards because the landing craft hadn't quite um got to 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 where the 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 shore was and the land rover went into the water and i remember water coming in through the door we had the exhausts on a um which went upwards you know for the arctic land rovers and there was literally water coming in the sides and it was pitch black no lights on anything and 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 the only light came from tracer um shots or explosions and i drove onto the beach and as soon as I drove onto the beach and stopped, the Land Rover listed and I was in sand that it was sinking in the sand on one side and it went over right over to the right. And, um, and I couldn't get out of it. It was stuck. And I thought, right, okay, guys. So I got all the guys to get as much stuff out of the Land Rover as we could. Um, and we had some pretty high security stuff in there. So we buried it. We just dug and buried it, put rocks on it so we knew where it was, and then went into cover. And then eventually we got, um, uh, I think it was Scots Guards or Marines, it was Marines, came over and said, right, you need to come up here, follow us. And we went up, and then we had a briefing that um, you don't go beyond this point. It's enemy territory. It hasn't been explored. It hasn't been cleared. Uh, You don't smoke. You don't light anything up you don't use torches and um and we'll wait till daylight 
and then things will be clearer um obviously and um and then and then then somebody came in and said we were in a in a um sort of a, a dugout area and we had um tarpaulin that was over the the, the area and he and this guy came in a sergeant sergeant major and he said look i need to form a patrol because we've lost an officer who's come off the ship and we don't know where he is but we think he may be further down the uh, the beach so we had to form into various sections and go out on patrol but knowing that there were areas that were absolutely no go because I hadn't been cleared they didn't know if there was enemy in there um and we just we, and and we were given various passwords to if you come across anyone you to use this word to so you recognize that yeah you blue blue forces and um and we did that and then the next day it, it, daylight came and um and and then we were told to dig trenches for ourselves um, still no real brief on what we're going to do, who we're going to be attached to, or anything like that. And then the planes start coming across the, um, you know, the uh, the mirages and uh, some of the low flying stuff comes across. Air, air raid reds, they're bombing the ground. They're um, the Puma helicopters and Sea Kings are disappearing into valleys to get away from the the aircraft that are, are bombing. And um, and then it went on, went on like that. That's a, that's a hell of a uh, a description you just put in there, mate. I've got to say, how did it finish for you though? I mean, you've still you, you've moved forward at some point, and the forces that are with you, they've taken you know Port Stanley and the Governor's House and everything else. But how did it finish for you, the Falklands? <sighs> Um, it, so again, Trevor Bradley, and again, you'll not forgive me for this, but he said, look, you've got a choice, Keith. He said, you can either come back on a Hercules or uh, we'll fly to the Ascension Islands and go back, or I really need somebody with, <laughs> with a vetting to go on a ship. That bloody vetting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. To go on a ship. And um, and come back. Unfortunately, this time um, I was nominated to go, but with a number of really good mates of mine who we'd been through a lot. Andy Turner being one of them, I remember Andy very well. And um, he was a good buddy of mine and still is. And um, and so we got on the ship um, again, flat bottom. This was called the Nordic Ferry, Townsend Torreson. And um, but before we came back, we had to we were assigned to go down to um, uh, Gritviken, um, South Sandwich Islands, um, to um, to pick up the Marines that had taken um, South Georgia, right, and the islands down there. So we went down to South Georgia. So I ended up in the um, the Antarctic Circle. And it was it was pretty cold. Yeah. And we picked up the Marines from there. Um, we picked up some bodies from there um, of those that died. Um, and, and, I've, and, and this is one of the, the regrets in my life. I have a photograph of me on the ship with an iceberg 
um, on on South Georgia. And at the top of that iceberg, or just behind it somewhere, is Ernest, Ernest Shackleton's grave. And, uh, you know, I've I've read Shackleton, the, the journeys of Shackleton, one of our greatest explorers, and he died on, on, on the island there and is buried there. Um, and if I had have known at that particular point in time, I would have done everything in my power to get off and go, and have a look. go and pay my respects to Ernest Shackleton. So, but anyway, so um, we, we picked up the Marines and then we had a, um, a sail over to the Ascensions. We dropped some bodies off and quite a few of the Marines. They were to fly back to the UK. And then we sailed back up the coast of Africa, very casually over a period of like eight weeks, whilst everybody landed back in the first few days. And and to be honest, for me, and I feel the others with me, we've been through so much, we were not in a rush to come back. No. We didn't want, we'd been through so much that to switch off and be straight back with your families overnight within a couple of days just didn't seem attractive. So the... It, it was almost like therapy to take our time and come back at our, under our own steam, at our own speed, and sort our lives out. Because we were such young people mm. and had been through so much. Suddenly we were adults. Yeah. Suddenly we were, we were veterans and we were just young kids. Kids. And we just, I just felt that that therapy of, coming back slow time uh, helped me to readjust my life at that time. Did you see that, you know, the, there's some classic or iconic photographs of where um, the Galahad, the Tristan, all those, were, were you conscious of that taking place whilst you were down there? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, um, I ended up uh, providing communications for um a, a roll call transport unit who was allocated the responsibility of um, the administration of prisoners. So it was setting up, of course, they didn't guard the prisoners. It was all about the, the strategic allocation of them, administration, food, electricity, um, uh, compounds, uh, areas to 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 put them because we're taking thousands of prisoners yeah. at some time. Just Goose Green alone. I mean, I, I, there was hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, and what do you do with them? So you had to have a, um, a highly uh, skilled sort of unit to 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 look at all the the, the issues around that operationally and strategically. Um, so I did the communications for them, and a lot of the communications was I'd get called by an SES patrol. Uh, Marines or whatever, saying that we've come, we've we've taken twenty five prisoners. What do you want us to do with them? And I would, you know, that was generally done in um, encoded because you did, you know, you, they didn't want to give away that where their position was or where the prisoners were coming from. Yeah, because Argentinian command needed to think that they they still had forces in certain areas, and I would pass a message to. Um, uh, to some uh, to an officer who would then delegate an area for those prisoners to be taken to. So I get back to that patrol, give them their grid reference, and they would bring them either to where we were and then be dispatched to where a compound was. Um, 
on occasions they didn't bring back as many as what they started off on the journey with. The SAS were um, uh, obviously needed to get, it was about resource and we've seen that in the police, although prisoners don't disappear. No, but, don't. You, you know, people um, can't keep up with the pace or whatever and are or, or injured and they die on the way back yeah. and stuff like that. So anyway, so um, because of that, on occasions, there was one occasion that I get, I get this um, because we were generally using smaller um, HF, high frequency radios and encoding everything because a lot of our encrypted stuff had been lost or was useless. So I had um, some generators, uh, three and a half kVA generators, which were to feed the, the more encrypted radios, but were useless. So one day I get contacted and told to um, uh, some prisoners in one of the compounds, they've got no electricity, no hot water. Can you, and it was Goose Green, can you go and um, set up the generators and give the prisoners some hot water um, and some electricity? And I said, yeah, okay then. So Sea King comes along and picks me up and, um, and we fly and we fly across the safe area, the taken areas of, um, of the Falklands. And we landed, actually, um, for re one reason or another, we landed at, um, at Fitzroy, where it coincided. Some of my pals were signals, were setting up a headquarters there. Right. And, uh, and the Galahad had just recently been hit. Wow. And, um, and they were dealing with all the, um, you know, the, 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 the what the, consequences of what had happened mm. the prisoners so that you know there was hospitals everywhere there were people being treated everywhere and stuff like that so i spent a little bit of time there and then i um then i flew on to to to, to goose green and um and there was scots guards were guarding the prisoners there um and um and i remember going into this i i went into physically walked into the compound surrounded by argentinian prisoners who were lying on the floor obviously didn't have weapons they could have had a knife but you know soldiers are pretty good at searching mm. and uh walked amongst these people and just i i just um i i was just fascinated at, at the age group you know they went from 14 to to 60 in age and they were very they were very sullen people they were very you know despondent and sad and um but when i gave them electricity and got a burka boiler on for a cup of tea they were elated and i got lots of pats on the back and stuff like that so i was always it was a very uncomfortable environment i should say because you know there was still the enemy and i was people were still dying so yeah. they weren't my friends by any means but i do remember that they were they were very grateful but there's humanity as well you know it's i, I think doing what we've done you've got to have that humility and humanity to deal with people. And the fact is, a lot of those people were there, they were press ganged into joining the Argentinian forces. They were they were sent over there, I'm not saying against their will, but they were certainly not the um, the willing volunteers that were portrayed. No, they, 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 were, they were press ganged. And, um, and some of them felt that they were on a... Some of them believed that they were in the south of Argentina. They didn't know that they were on the Malvinas. They, they felt they got on a ship and they thought the ship had docked um, Gone further down the coast. Down, 
down in Argentina. But I, I mean, I, it was it was really tragic personally for me because um, I think it was the uh, the sixth of June. Um, my OC, Major Michael Forge, and I was in B uh, Troop, and my staff sergeant was Alginet, and then there was Alpha Troop. So the 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 squadron I was in was split into two. Yeah. And their staff sergeant was Joe Baker, who I knew very, very well. Um, and um, a Major Michael Forge and, and Joe Baker were flying in a Gazelle helicopter. Um, and they were they, they were taking supplies and some encrypting equipment to one of our units on on a on a hill yeah. with, on a re, rebroadcast station. And the gazelle was mistaken for a um, for a Hercules, believe it or not. It was they, they were flying in a channel that the Argentinians used, an air channel, um, frequented by Hercules aircraft. And HMS Cardiff um, sent a couple of sea darts up uh. and blew them out the sky. The pilot, the co-pilot, uh, my OC and staff sergeant all all perished. Um, and that was a huge blow. That was a massive blow to our squadron. We, when that happened, we, it, it's the leader. Your, your leaders have, have gone mm. under such tragic, tragic. circumstances, tragic. blue on blue. Um, and that, that, that really cut into many of us. And, and then you, you lose hope in a lot of ways when, when it's close and it's personal. That's terrible. I mean, and, the, and do you know what? Those poor souls that push the button as well, you know, they're, yes. Yes. they're just, they're, they're sitting there today thinking about that, that very day, the 6th of June, 1982. So all this death and destruction and you've come back, you're, you're decompressing on the, uh, on the ferry, the Townsend Torreson ferry. And you get person is a is a has a, a word with many meanings. It does, yeah. <laughs> getting drunk, get, getting <laughs> drunk, and going across the equator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You arrived back in the UK. Where did you dock? Uh, Southampton, um, and um, to much um, the the army had paid for um, close uh, family members to come and stay down in accommodation, which you did, uh, was a surprise. I didn't know. No idea. So we arrive, we're arriving back and we have this amnesty um, whereby we get told whatever possessions that you've taken from prisoners, particularly if they're firearms, um, <laughs> as an amnesty, hand them in. Um, so I kept, you know, there's, there's certain things that you do keep. I kept my boots and my uh, Argentinian helmets and, uh, you know, stuff like that, yeah. the, the innate, inane stuff. But the um, things like the uh, weapons, and I did have a, a, a Belgian FN folding butt that I handed in, um, as did many other soldiers, and quite rightly too, because yeah. you know they fall in the hands of criminals or the IRA, and it's um, you know we're we're contributing to to the deaths of uh, yeah. other people. So, so the weapons were handed in, and then we um, and then we docked at Southampton with that. You know, you've seen the pictures, the. The Union Jacks, the crowds on many levels, and the bands, and the uh, pomp and circumstance, and all that sort of stuff. 
And um, and then we we all got searched. This was the other thing. We went into a, a big hangar. And because we had vehicles, they searched everything because they wanted to make sure that we didn't have those trophies, those weapons. We weren't too bothered about the boots and the the helmets and stuff like that. But it was the, um, you know, the, the knives and stuff like that that yeah. people had taken. So um, they searched us, um, the RMPs, and then we were released into a reception area and there was my mother. Oh, um, and my mother had come down and um, and of course I had a girlfriend then at the time but it you know i think the army was limited on how many people could come and it was the closest that they contacted and um and so um and so me and my mum went out on the town in southampton of course everywhere you went was free it were everybody knew that you had returned that day or one of the uh, returning ships and every pub every restaurant every everything was just free fantastic um, and everybody was your friend and then i um and then we traveled back i got, had a train warrant they said you've got some i don't know i think a couple of months of leave wow of course it's that a stack of money stack of money i could buy a car i had so much money and i did 250 quid on a on an escort um, wow. Because you'd you'd not spent anything. Plus, you'd earned the X Factor money. You know, you were in a war environment, so you get paid a little bit more. But I don't know, twenty pence a day or whatever it was in those days. And um, and we went up, and and then a surprise party that um, my mum had arranged a street party um, for me when I got back, and all my relatives and all my extended family were there. Um, and the first thing I did was. As I say, I paid 250 quid, got a green escort with furry seats and furry dice and a cassette tape of um, uh, Brian Ferry and um, scooted down to Harrogate and uh, back to my girlfriend. Bloody hell. Um, and, and, um, and enjoyed the leave before going back. That's incredible. I mean, Brian Ferry, he's a, he's a northeast lad as well, isn't he? But uh, it is honestly, mate, it, I find it absolutely fascinating. And I know the area. My family are from Middlesbrough, and I know that and how proud they are of the the armed forces up there. You know, it is absolute. They're absolutely wrapped with it. Do your kids know any of these stories? Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not a. Well, you know, I've written a book, so I suppose you can't say I'm a. I, I don't tell stories, but um, I, I, you, it's it's taken a long time to talk about things that happened, yeah. and particularly when your kids come later, so they're of a generation that don't really understand. I mean, I'm can I went to um, I went to Berlin when the Berlin Wall was up. And I went to checkpoint. Char- have you been to Berlin? Uh, I have, long time ago. Did you go when the when the wall was? I, I was a kid, yeah. So that was yeah. But I was yeah, very yeah. very You're small. Military we, family. We li- yeah, yeah, yeah. America. We lived in Munster and and whatever. So yeah, it's um. So yeah. we went on the Berliner, which was the train that drove through East Germany, and you had to go in uniform. A, a Soviet guard got on the train at Potsdam and checked. Not your papers, but the papers of everybody else, because that was the agreement if, there, if you were a soldier. Then you go to Berlin, and we were able to get um, a trip into the east. We were followed by Stasi, 
they, they were so apparent. They manipulated where we could go, and it was all to see um, Stalinism, Stalin statues, um, the the crushing of the swastika, the, um, uh, the 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 unknown soldiers burning flame. All that was all um, set up for us, and stuff like that went through the wall. And then you had to come queue through the wall to get back through and people, you know, with guns and stuff like that. Now, put yourself with kids who are born, who are 20 years old, 30 years old or whatever, and say there was once this city that had a huge wall around it. And if you left this city or tried to get into this city, you were shot dead. And tell people nowadays about that. They say, what kind of books have you been reading? Yeah. This is all fiction. This is not true. But it is. Yeah, it, it is. is. And we true. lived through all that. So, yes, I tell my kids about it, but it's a very, very watered-down version of uh, the reality of it because they quickly get bored thinking, you know, this can't be true. I hope they listen to this, mate. So, <laughs> so what year did you finish in the military? Right. So, um, so I'd always said, so I eventually got married. Uh, we traveled to Germany. I had some stints in, in a couple of stints in Cyprus, uh, Belize, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And then, um, but we'd always said that if we have a, the day we have a child is a day that we reevaluate our life in the forces, because I just didn't feel personally speaking that, I was comfortable bringing a child up in a forces environment. Mm. And that wasn't because the forces in any way didn't care for people with children, but it was a personal thing because you, you have to take them out of school and into a different school, maybe into a different country or put them in boarding school, yeah. which I thought, what's the point, you know, of having children and never seeing them. And there was all those sort of things that we said for our quality of life, as parents with a child, we would, pers we personally feel that the the forces wasn't the right place. So, in 19, um, 1990, um, or, or 89, Karen got pregnant, and um, we uh, we decided that I should put my my notice in, which I did. Which at the time I recall being very, very sad about it because it was my life. Uh, everything that I'd grown up with was was there. But to um, to leave was the right thing to do and the right thing for our children. So um, so I, I left, and, and so nineteen ninety. So did you get a half pension when you, or did you transfer that into policing? Yeah joined the police initially because I, I I pushed back on joining the police because most most soldiers or, or a, a majority of soldiers tended to feel that the police was a replacement from the forces mm. and I didn't want to replace something I wanted to fight for something myself and that goes back to my younger days my mum saying you can do better yeah use your skills and get out there and do something and I didn't want to follow the crowd if you see what I mean mm. so I went into um, engineering sales for a while, worked for a couple of companies, a Belgian company, had a few trips out there, work-related trips. Then I worked for a company in Yorkshire for a while. But it was a comradeship 
that I wasn't getting. I was in a big wide world with cutthroat competitive people who would cut your legs off to get to um, a position above you and quite ruthless, um, not honest, I didn't think, the world that I was working in. And I thought, well, maybe I should look towards the police and get back to that environment where people are doing the right thing for the right for people you know uh, for the queen country and stuff like that yeah and um so i joined west yorkshire police in 1993 may 1993 uh trained at durham um and and my first um posting in in the police was in jewsbury in west yorkshire oh, right. yeah no it will no, well, I spent a, a long time up there on different inquiries. You, you, you. If we go back a step, your dad was in, you know, he worked for the central Elect- central electricity generating board. You've had the miner strike going on up there as well. What was that like being, you know, you because there were times where they said they were going to put soldiers to support the support the police and all those types of things. What was that like for your family? Well, for, fortunately, the, the, when I go back on the years, the miners' strike took place just before I was deployed back to the UK right. from Germany. And I remember being in Germany and fellow soldiers out there would see the news, be watching the news, see the, the, the soldiers that were deployed into the Yorkshire mines. It wasn't just Yorkshire, obviously, it was all over the country. And um, and we we were sitting in Germany, and I remember conversations were around the, the lines of, Thank God we're out here. Mm. We do not want to be battling against our own people. And, that, and that's how we saw it. It was, yeah. a, it was almost a civil war was going was. on back in the UK. And we were so happy to have the opportunity to, to not be part of yeah. it. So when I joined the police those years later, yes, I was in places like um, Pontefract, Selby, Places battlegrounds for for um, uh, for the police and the miners, and of course I was policing that hatred that still was entrenched and and you know was part of the DNA yeah. of the communities, were that the police were the enemy. So I'd come from the forces, now wearing the uniform of uh, a constable, and was hated by the very people that you know were my fellow civilians, colleagues, whatever, back in the UK after yeah. having been through a war and been through Germany and, uh, and and lived through the Cold War and stuff like that. And and so, yeah, it was a really strange environment working um, with all these people that just hated the, the, the police. And that's, that's a real shame, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, you, you've been held up as a hero because with everybody else that served in the Falklands, and now you're coming back and being vilified for taking another role to work working for the crown. Yeah. When you um, when you're in West Yorkshire, how did you find the transition from the military to the police? What was what was what was it like for you? I found it difficult to begin with. Um, I think I think I was I, I had I had misguided expectations of the police because I felt I felt. Because the military is very disciplined and you you go in the direction that you're told to, to go, 
yes, you use your own skills and ability, but it's very, very much um, uh, set out what you're going to do. Um, suddenly in an environment where the police, you have to think for yourself. You have to, yes, you're told what to do and where to go, but you're on your, you're on your own, kid, mm. when you're out there. You've got to make the decisions, sometimes life-threatening decisions. Um, so... I, th I think for a soldier, it, it's it's much easier to be a police officer. And I was I was I was 28, so uh, when I joined the police. So yes, I had a lot of experience, and I was able to 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 cope much better because of the uh, the military background. What I didn't expect <laughs> is what I, I saw with some police officers, which were police officers come in many forms. Most of them, I have to say, are extremely professional, extremely skilled in what they do and are determined to make things right and make things happen. But I just couldn't believe the amount that, you know, were a little bit lazy um, and didn't go on their beats when they were told to do it and stuff like that. And I, that, that shocked me quite, quite a bit, um, having come from that disciplined environment yeah. to an environment where because people could do what they wanted, it, there were one or two that were just a bit mischievous. Yeah, sometimes they did do exactly what they wanted. <clears throat> the um, yeah, I mean, I, I came from a very structured background with my dad. He was in the military and he was in the police, and I think that well, you worked with me. You know what I was like. Um, that sort of came through into my my policing style and dealing with people. But it does. Yeah, we're not yeah. we're not all the same. How long did you serve in West Yorkshire? Um, I served until 2005, um, and it was in 2003 that I was told I had hemochromatosis um, and had to take life, take a different um, sort of pace in life. Um, I'm not sure, are you, are you aware of hemochromatosis? No. So hemochromatosis is a genetic um, disease condition and basically um i have very high ferritin levels which is iron yes. in my blood and um and and if if left unseen um it you it, 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 the consequences are liver damage a heart failure around about your 60s 70s and uh, that sort of age group if it's not identified now fortunately it was identified in my sister had a blood condition and the doctor was really skilled enough to say get your brothers to go for a, a hemochromatosis test which which i did and i was found to have so normal um uh, normal levels of iron in in a, in a male um uh, blood would be about 270 i had 770 measurement in mine which was at like extreme levels so i had to go for what they call for venisections over a 12-month period, every month given a litre of blood to reduce the iron levels. Wow. Um, and um, But the, the consultant said to me at that time, what's your job? I said, a police officer, I'm a, a detective. Uh, I think it was detective sergeant at that time. And he said, you've really got to think of a career, um, changing your career choice at the moment because you need to take things easy. You need to look after your health a lot more. Um, you need to think about your future because if 
and they did test me for um, for degeneration of internal organs, and they said, "You're fine. We've caught it early." And you'll be on a maintenance program, which is you have to give a litre of blood periodically over a year for the rest of your life to keep those iron levels down. It's the only way you can keep the iron down is to expel blood. So, um, but he says, you've got to take life easy. So I thought, um, right, okay, think of the future. And 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 what, what, what we did is we bought a place in France for, because I didn't want to retire from the police because... I just I just didn't want to stop working and I didn't I, I didn't personally feel that I needed to take a career choice. I think we can all work at a pace in policing that, yeah. that suits policing, but, you know, can can work with you as well. And um, so I decided to um, we buy a place in France and it's something we can retire to. So I could take it easy over there. Uh, that was in 2005. And then I'd transfer to a force that was closer to France. So my family would move over to France at that time. And I'd work for a force. And then when I can, get across, but continue to pay the bills and that sort of thing. And I, I, I tried, I, well, I, I looked at Essex, uh, sorry, Kent. But I didn't quite like uh, some of the criteria that they they were asking for. And then I, I looked at Essex and thought, wow, that looks a great force to work for. Um, it's got the variety. It's near London. Um, nice it's, got, people. it's got some really difficult places to work and some not so difficult. Um, and it was at the time David Stevens was the uh, the chief constable at that time. And um, and so I applied to uh, to go to Essex police and a very very quick very slick sort of process i think i should have thought through it why did they need me so quickly why did they want me so badly i didn't quite didn't quite work that out i was astute to uh, what was going on and i came down and I, i um and a guy rang me and he had a geordie accent and i thought this is great there's a geordie works down there and uh, I feel, you know, make me feel a bit at home. And uh, he said, come down and come and bring your family down. And come, come and uh, have a look at where, you know, where you're going to work. And I went to Chelmsford and I had an interview and uh, Geordie Tyson yep. sat in front of me and uh, interviewed me. And he says, I'll just take you down to where we want you to go. He said, well, he, to be honest, he said, where do you want to go? And I said, busy. I want to go busy. <laughs> I, I don't do quiet. I've got to do busy. Even having this consultant say, you've got to take life in yeah. an easier place. And he says, we've got a great spot for you. And at that time, I was uh, I was a DI. And he said, uh, but it's not in CID, but you'll quickly get back into CID. It's a uniform post, but we want you to go to Tilbury because we're having problems recruiting an inspector for Tilbury. And I said, what's it like? And he said, oh, it's busy. You, you aren't busy. Tilbury's busy. We'll take you down to Grays um, and, and Tilbury. And I remember arriving in Tilbury and seeing this fortress, this blue, the walls were painted blue and white, and it had barbed wire. Yeah, it was something like out of uh, Belfast. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, whoa, this is a bit, this is a bit, sort of in your face because I come from West Yorkshire follow, following the riots there where we'd taken glass screens away from the front of um, reception, police receptions, and we were much more 
ingrained with the and in touch with the communities and, and, and that sort of thing. And yet here was a police station which was saying to everybody, don't come anywhere near us. This is our fortress and we will fight to the end when, you know, if you attack. Um, and that was my introduction. And I remember Karen and the two kids in the car and I drove them through Grays and, you know, I, I got to love Grays eventually. If you can say that, I suppose I'm just being a little bit polite, really. And I remember my wife and kids and their faces and they just couldn't say anything. They said, Dad, do you really want to work here? And I said, I don't see it through the same set of eyes. I think this is great. This is mm. here's challenges, here's opportunities. And that was my policing and life sort of thing. You know, I saw this is where I really want to work. And um, and so that's it. That's my sort of um, uh, start with um, Essex Police. At Tilbury, I worked on seven murders in nine months in Tilbury. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, they are salt of the earth people down there. There's some great people, but yeah. they soon let you know if they're not happy with something. Yeah, yeah. And it it, it became, a, a you know, there were, there were some real challenges around the ethnic communities down there and the um, uh, the ex-stevedores, uh, I think, were the descendants of the, um, the shipbuilders, shipmakers. Um, and it was very much uh, racism was it was a was a huge issue, um, and I got involved with a lot of community support groups. Um, but besides that, um, it, the, the, there were a lot of career criminals oh. there, yeah, um, who made it their job to keep us really really busy. Yeah, I um, and then we we amalgamated into um, and John Basildon. yeah. Um, and um, and and so we had Basildon and Grays together as uh, and and I was I eventually got promoted to um, DCI there and uh, serving, serving under um, a great mate of mine Simon Coxell who you've interviewed yeah, on yeah, this yeah. show I, I love Simon yeah he's, he's a great role model Simon I, I love working for him yeah and then eventually Glenn Caton who again fantastic what a mentor he was when i did my strategic firearms um glenn was uh you could not ask for a better tutor than glenn he, he i learned so much from glenn oh cool and then of course you come to harlow where we worked together well brentwood to begin oh with. yeah brentwood i remember that phone call yeah, i remember that phone call when somebody's uh Finance officer got arrested, and you were you were the chief inspector there, and you got a phone call from uh, somebody. Oh, yeah, Mister Mister um, Sugar, Mister Sugar, Lord Sugar. I, I, I so yeah, so I'm in the office <laughs> at Brentwood, a bit uncomfortable because I'm back in uniform as a chief inspector from CID, um, being thrown all these performance measures and stuff like that. And somebody rings up from the the, uh, the reception that said, we've got a call we need to transfer to you. And I said, yes, who is it? And they said, it's Sir Alan Sugar. I said, get out of here. Get out. No way. No way. This is, it's a genuine wind-up, isn't it? It's, a, it's my first day. I'm being wound up. And... Um, and I thought, yeah, put them through. And I thought it'll be bloody malaria or something. 
it'll be, you know, I'll suss this one out straight away. Anyway, he spoke on the phone. And it was it was Alan Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't we, yeah. we won't go into detail while he phoned, but he wasn't very happy, was no, he, no, with no, with, with one of our members of staff. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember that day. That was that was hilarious because we were trying to deal with the uh, the the fallout from what that officer had actually done. So yes. you've you've done your time in Essex, and you know you've enjoyed it. You've been successful there, but you you decided that you needed to make that change again. Um, promotions, that you know, opportunities, and you like a challenge. Uh, so, yeah. you, so you went to the Metropolitan Police. Well, it was more than that. The uh, I, I thought, right, okay, I've got like something like five years left to do. I'm a chief inspector. I might as well try and go for superintendent. I might as well end up, um, you know, at, at that strategic level if if I can. And I. I went. I did a couple of um, applications for Essex and didn't really. And, and quite rightly, you know, I got the feedback. I wasn't quite ready for it and stuff like that. And I sat on my hands for a while. Um, and I was a temporary superintendent anyway, so I didn't really have to get promoted because I could have seen that out to the end. But like you say, I wanted the challenge. And then somebody said to me, "The Met are, invest, um, are asking for interviews for superintendent." substantive superintendent and I looked at it and I thought wow the Met wow I've never you know I've been in West Yorkshire served in Essex but the Met was a different animal it was you know I'd heard so many really good things about the Met but equally a lot of bad things and I'd served with officers who come from the Met who were seemed to be all running away from something and um and I decided that I put the application in, but somebody said to me, don't, don't even bother. You won't get it. They're so, um, uh, the, the, at strategic level, they will only promote their own people. Um, and you won't get it. So it's a paper exercise. You're not going to get it. And again, that sets me up to a challenge. You know, somebody's mm. like saying, you can't have it. You can't do it. And I go back to my mother saying, you can do better. You can always do better. And, um, Little did I know, but Bernard Hogan Howe was um, uh, uh, had gone through selection. He was just about to become the commissioner and had become the commissioner by the time that the process came to the interviews. And um, and I think what he wanted and quite rightly, because I do believe in this, he wanted he wanted the diversity of bringing people from outside the Met into the Met to break down some of the barriers and some of the myths about the Met, to bring people in who had different experiences and stuff like that. And I think I think his brief to his uh, interviewers were to keep an eye on, you know, some some skilled people who are bringing some skills in, in into the Met. And um, and so I got uh, I got interviewed and um, and I and I, I got selected. And in those days, I can remember they were recruiting something like between 56 and 72 superintendents each year. Incredible. The numbers were massive. Now, I'm not putting myself down because it wasn't easy to get through. And I got interviewed by one of the uh, one of the most difficult people in the Met, uh, a Met commander. 
I forget his first name, but he's, um, and he'll not forgive me for this. Um, he he invest he was SIO for the the Dando murder. Right. Uh, Campbell, Hamish Campbell, very uh, revered, um, respected person in the Met, known as the barrister because he got into the minutia. And he interviewed me. And we got on great during the interview. And anyway, I got I got through, got promoted, and I um, and Steve Kavanagh, who was to be my, uh, he was DSC responsible for um, uh, that recruitment uh, drive, um, posted me to Enfield as the immediately as a borough commander, wow. so superintendent, but didn't have a borough commander. So I was temporary borough commander at Enfield day one when I went into the largest police force in the country with the biggest issues, with the biggest challenges. And I had 600 people under under me, officers and, and staff as a borough commander. And it was it wasn't easy. No, <laughs> it wasn't easy no at all. That, that is real stress. Are you pleased that you made the jump? Yeah, I think I think it's just an accession of my life. It's just you know one thing after the other. It's I I, I see my life as a as as a novel, as a book, and it's got many chapters. <laughs> There's not many left, but you know I I see everything I've done in my life as one chapter after another, and with chapter you get closure and then you get beginnings, and um, that was a new beginning to my life. And I've always been supported by a great family. My wife, you know, bless her care. And she's, she's supported me through all of this. And, um, and, you know, we married, we, we, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary last year. And through all this, she's been there as a rock. And, um, and my kids, Jack and Grace, they've, they've always been there and supported me and moved with me they've gone with what i wanted much to their own cost i have mm. to say um but you know bless them it, it is hard so you you then go on to the um seat into the ct wolf yeah so 20 so 20 scotland yard i remember going to you had the most amazing office the best views in london I've still got a photograph of standing by the window and you've got every iconic site behind you, Westminster Abbey, right the way across to the, you know, you can just see everything in the distance. It's great. Yeah. What, what was the highlight of your policing career? I, I, you know, you probably asked loads of people the same question and, and, and the answer is probably no different from most people. It's really difficult to... to pick something out when you've had such a varied career. Yeah. And I've been in CID, I've done public order, advanced public order, I've done firearms and attended and commanded firearms operations. And it's really difficult. But I suppose if if I was to be romantic about it and 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 you know emotive, it would go back to my CID days as being a real a DS and a DI on the ground and all the days being in touch yeah. with people, getting the bad guys, going for the bad guys. And, you know, I I worked on on quite a few murders and we used to, 
in West Yorkshire, because uh, we're situated between Manchester, Merseyside, Newcastle and Leeds itself, you've got gangs going, you know, vying yeah. for territory, vying for the drugs, um, rackets, um, knocking pe- each other off, people off. And um, and those were the days that um, there was some really significant murders up there. I, I, I ended up on one that was a, a bad on bad, um, where a significant um, nominal um, was shot in the head by a, a um, somebody on a motorcycle who we knew had come from Manchester um, and it was an execution. And that was, so you've asked about the highlight. The highlight was that it was a bad on bad murder because those are particularly difficult because the mm. public just don't want to come forward. And the only people who have information are institutionalised criminals. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to work as a detective at varying different levels and understand the language of these people. And when I say language, I mean their the way that they live, work and treat people to be able to even get anywhere near them, to interview them and talk to them. And there were so many interviews that were off the record. In fact, most of them were, turn that off, don't get any paper out. I'm not even going to sign anything. And those were the interviews. But you can't use them in evidence. No. So the challenges were massive. So, yes, those were um, the days with, with the highlight in CID, doing the real gritty stuff. I mean, we've all, I'm not going to go into the lowlights because we've, we've, we all know what they are around, you know, your time that you lose with your family and the, the bullies yeah. within the organisation and things like that. So you're now retired. Keith Dobson retired, moved back from France, settled back in the UK and grafting away elsewhere. But you've also written a book. Yeah, yeah, which was launched two days ago. Um, much to, uh, to my surprise, the first uh, run from the printers, the entire run was sold out in three hours. Brilliant. Um, so we're having to go back to the printers to get more copies delivered to the supply the um, the suppliers who will then deliver to Amazon, Waterstones, W. H. Smiths, etc. Um, so yes, yeah, I did. I wrote, I wrote a book. You're very modest there, mate, because you know that that's a hell of an achievement for a, a boy that hasn't got an O level. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm that I'm that fella as well, mate. But uh, you know. That's, that is a hell of a – so how was the process for you for writing the book? I don't want you to go into the detail of the book because obviously I want people to buy it. First of all, what is your book called? Okay, it's called Crossing the Line. And the pro, I, I wrote the book almost as a, a biographic, biographical memoir of my um, time in Belize as a young soldier right. in Belize. I spent six months in Central America. And that was one of the most bizarre postings and fantastic postings anybody could ever have. Living in a jungle environment in the Caribbean as a soldier for six months. It was every minute was a roller coaster ride in what was about to happen. And it, if it wasn't a tornado, if it wasn't providing um or, or helping to provide uh, medication for Mayan Indians up in the jungle if it wasn't um 
uh, having a time off and traveling up to Mexico and getting into trouble up there, if it wasn't, um, you know, having an encounter with an alligator or a tarantula or being bitten as with by a scorpion as I was and it was just a roller coaster ride so I wrote a, a biographical account of that and I sent it off to a few publishers and my family had said get it published don't just write it you know because initially my motivation was just to just to write it just to get an account on paper and anyway my kids said and my wife said send it off to a publisher so I sent it to a few publishers and I, I got some remarkable feedback. None of them really wanted to take it on because it was a biographical account. But there was one, one particular publisher and he wrote uh, what he called um, factional accounts, yeah. which is half fact, half fiction. And he said, Keith, try and reduce the amount of words that and pages that you've put into it, but try and write it as a fictional um, account because the beauty with that is you can you can make things up you can make things sexy you can make things really more exciting by stepping outside and introducing characters and stuff like that so I didn't I, I just sat on it for a couple of years and then um, and then my wife said Keith what what, what you, you've done all that work why why let it sit there and and, and stall so then the pandemic came along, didn't it? And uh, we all found some free time uh, during the pandemic. And I decided to uh, to have a look at it and maybe just turn it into a fictionalized account of someone based on fact going to Belize soldiers. And, um, and so I wrote this and I, I carried on, it, you know, I couldn't stop. And it, it, it was based around people and, and places and, things that had gone on in my life. And I came to the end of it and I sent it off to a few publishers and I just couldn't believe the response. I had seven publishers who wanted to take me on. Brilliant. And I was then in a position where the dilemma was not trying to get it published, but trying to work out the best deal yeah. from all of these publishers. And the one I went with, I, I went with primarily because it, I learned so much about publishers and it is a minefield and it's really difficult and, and they want to own your book because they want to make profit from it. They're investing in it. So yeah. they want their money back plus profit. And the one I chose, I chose it purely based on that. They said that they would leave the copyright with me. They will not own the book at the end of the, the journey with them. But then they took it, the editor looked at it and, uh, then the hard work began. Writing the book's not the hard work. It's agreeing and correcting the book after it's written. And my English was appalling because, I, you know, school and stuff like that. And it was like going back to English classes because the editor said, I will take you on this journey and you will learn. Because if you write another book, you need to understand that you need to correct it before you submit it. It's much easier for us then. So I learned so much about uh, English literature um, and, and went through that journey with the editor and stuff like that. So, yes, we got to the end of it. And um, and two days ago, um, it, it got launched. It's still in the launch period at the moment because it's going to be a press release and um, and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it's um, it's it's on its way. 
Congratulations. And do you know what? That's inspirational because I've got some very good friends who are very quick to pick up on my grammar. I don't know whether I've got such a dyslexia, but putting commas in the right places or semicolons, that wasn't what I did at school. That's yeah. that just wasn't yeah. that wasn't me. I, I'm the, I'm like Keith Dobson, you know. I went to school, walked away, and succeeded because I worked hard, not because I knew how to write an essay. And well, that- I learned so many things, Paul. Um, and and one thing is never to put huge amounts of dialogue when you write a book because dialogue comes with so many um, odd rules around it. You know, you can put a capital letter after a comma in certain circumstances. And of course I didn't learn that at school. And, um, and of course in my book, there was there's there's tons of dialogue. There's, you know, people are talking and the danger is that that's where the hard work is dialogue, getting it right. And, and there are some authors, uh, JK Rowland is, is one who go against the rules and it's acceptable. It is acceptable for writers just to say, look, this is me. This is my style. I'm not going to apply those rules that uh, you would do ordinarily. Um, but what I've tried to do is keep it to, to you know, some some version of the rules. That's brilliant. Well, let's hope you make as much money as she has with through her Harry Potter books. Hopefully. <laughs> Mate, before we conclude this interview, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time, Keith. It's been great catching up with you. But... Is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today? I love it. It sounds like an interview, doesn't it? <laughs> and I've listened to so many podcasts, uh, so I know how you end these. But uh, but no, Paul, it's just been a pleasure. Um, I've had a great ride. I've had a great time in Essex. And just to you know, uh, let you know, I'll be down there soon. And we've had a few nights out Brilliant. when we've been able to get down there. Um, but, uh, but thanks for your friendship and, um, all you've done. Um, and you were, you were a real, um, uh, good guy at Brentwood and, and at Harlow. Thank you, mate. So, thanks. No, thank you. And I wish you well. Yeah. And you take care. 